Kicking off a brand new series called In His Image, and uh, before Dunks jumps into it, I'm going to pray for him. I think this is a really important uh, moment in the life of our church, a very significant series, and I'm really excited for what God's going to speak to us. So Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the way that you speak to us. Thank you for the great and enormous love you have for us. And I pray this morning, won't you speak through Duncan, won't you use him as a vessel as he kicks us off in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 10 a.m. online, how are we doing? You get me two weeks in a row, so it's going to be good. We are jumping into a brand new series, In His Image, Living in God's Design, Manhood, Womanhood, Relationships. And uh, there's no hiding away from it. We understand we're walking into a tinderbox conversation. And uh, so on the back of last week where we ended off our Truth Hurts series, if we are seeking to build our lives on the truth of God's word that he has revealed to us, if we really are trying to build a strong foundation with him being the way, the truth, and the life, it means that the truth of God will always butt up against our desires, our emotions, and even the ways of the world. And so we're walking into a conversation that I can guarantee in the next four weeks weeks, somewhere along the line, every single one of us will have a moment or moments where we will be offended. I want you to know I've been preaching for more than 10 years. I have never been afraid to preach a message. I'm afraid to preach this message. All cards on the table. But it is such an important truth that God has designed us as creator, that he actually has given us in his word his design for how this life is meant to be lived, in how he made us, in how he put us together, in how he joins us back to him in redemption because we've been broken by this thing called sin and how we are joined together in relationship with each other. And so it's such an important conversation to have. And I want to put a few disclaimers up front. Number one disclaimer, today is going to be a long preach. Get yourself strapped in. I'm sorry. It's so important. There's so much. I have so much to get through. Number two is this. With a a topic that we're going to hit with many topics that are hot topics, that are moments where we as a church really need to stop and say, hey, this is what we believe we see and affirm in God's word. It means when you hear me say things today, understand it's not just Duncan's words. It's not just Duncan's opinion. It's not just Duncan's uh, way of seeing what God has revealed. Actually, as elders and the leaders of this church, we've actually affirmed that this is how we see it. And so we will take a stand and positions on certain topics, topics like gender and sexuality and identity, and we understand that it might not be popular in our world. Put that out front, we understand we're going to take some heat. But the most important thing, and I would ask you to do it as an encouragement, is to stick with us in the conversation. Because actually, we believe that this is a community where we're called to stand on the word of God, the truth of God, but we're also to walk out difficult moments together in community. And so I want to encourage you, if you've got concerns, questions, if you're struggling in the next few weeks today, please come talk to us. We want to have a conversation. We want to create a space where you can have this conversation, where maybe you don't see what we see, but actually God calls us to walk this thing out together. And so that's open and available to you every single week. If you're online, you can let us know, get into the comment section, get in in contact with us. We We don't want to lose anyone in the process. We want to be honoring and loving in it, but seeking God's truth together. Is that good? What I want to do is take a look 
at the focus of God's word in the area of creation, God's design for us, living in God's design. And my encouragement on the front end is as we look at God's word, let's not miss his heart. Because we're going to look at his word as truth for us. And that truth might be difficult, it might butt up, it might offend. But it will offend all the more if we miss God's heart through his word. Because his heart is actually for us. Because actually he is seeking our good, our fulfillment, our flourishing. Because he understands the damage of sin and where it leads in destruction of our very souls. And so don't just focus on his word. Get caught up in that without remembering his heart. And so we're going to dive into God's perfect design. And God has always used the physical creation to speak to spiritual realities. And so when we take a look at how God designed us in humanity, our bodies, sex, marriage, these type of things, it will speak to spiritual truth and realities that God reveals in his word. So we're going to dive into the Genesis account. Genesis 1 through 3 details how God created the world, how God created humanity, men and women like you and me, in his image, and how that image was broken and we live in the brokenness of it. I don't think anyone's going to debate that there is crazy brokenness in our world. And so as we go into Genesis, I want to give us a picture of what the blessing is of the design, but in the rebellion against that design, the curse that comes along with it. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26, it says this, Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created. That's identity. Male and female, he created them. Gender. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And so God gives us a, de a design for relationship in the context of marriage. He actually gives us a design that says, hey, this is the design pre the fall where it has been blessed by God, where actually it has been set up for you and me for our flourishing. But as Adam and Eve, and so too with us, as we rebel against that design, go our own way, swap God's truth for our own truth, what we find is a curse. And God's words in Deuteronomy 30 verse 19, I think are so applicable in this space. It says, I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse, therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live. And so we're gonna take a look at the contrast of the blessing of God's design where his heart is for our flourishing. As difficult as that might be, because it can so often go against what we want and desire in our hearts. And yet we so often always turn away from that, pick our own way. And we wonder why we see the damage and the brokenness of our world and the damage and brokenness we feel within. It's no shock. So as we look at these big ideas of identity and gender and marriage and sexuality, I wanna look at it under these headings. The first big heading we're gonna take a look at is one God, one image. The phrase that comes out in that Genesis account is, let us make man in our image. Us, plural, the Trinity God is our creator. Three persons in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, are involved in the creation of you and me. And he's specific that this is a special creation, the pinnacle of my creation, because it is the only thing that will be made in my likeness. It is the only thing that gets given an image. And in Genesis 2, it goes deeper in its explanation. This is what it says in verse 7. 
Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, Adam, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Some things I want to highlight even in the midst of this God design in identity. Number one is that the identity we are given in God is the image of God and that it is life God-breathed. That actually we are created not just as physical beings but spiritual beings too. And so you are not just a clump of flesh and bone, but actually because God would breathe life into us, breathe his spirit, his presence into us, it means that now we are not just physical beings, but spiritual beings too, that hold the image and likeness and are valued by God above all creation. All creation, he looks at and says it's good. When it comes to humanity, men and women, he says it is very good. It is the pinnacle of his creation. Now, you might be okay with that. Hey, God's a creator, good. But there might be an argument against that says, you know what, if God really is so caring for us, why can't he just create us and then leave us to do what we want? Why does he feel like he has to now call us to live a certain way, call us to think a certain way, call us to go about life a certain way? If God is really creator, the one who shaped us, not just from dust and put together bones and flesh and our physical bodies, but is also the one who breathes life into us so that there is this deep affection and love from the heart of God for you and me. It's gonna tell us two things. Number one, God as creator has authority over his design. And so he has authority to draw lines that we shouldn't draw. Our rebellion is when we draw the lines that only God should. Second thing it highlights is, again, God's love and deep affection for us. And so we can't doubt his heart in that space because any line he draws is for our good, for our flourishing, so that we would find fulfillment in how he has created and designed us. Second highlight I want to pull out here is that very specifically in the creation of identity for humanity, God places it in place and purpose, and so it says he places the man in a garden in Eden in the east. And so we too are placed in a place for a reason. That God actually provides in that space pre the fall before sin has messed everything up where he puts him in a place where there is complete harmony with God and man. Where there is nourishment from the fruit of the plants that God provides as man is called to work and find nourishment and it, there is an ease pre the fall that we just don't see again. Because in the midst of the place, God gives a purpose and the purpose is twofold. The purpose for man right at the beginning is work and worship. Number one, you will work the ground. He says, actually, you will work the dust from where you came so that you can be nourished by it. And pre the fall, that's easy, but then the blessing of that gets turned to curse after the fall. And he says, hey, the purpose isn't gonna change. You're still purposed to work by God, but now that work is gonna come along with a, a, a curse that means by the sweat of your brow, you will work. And so work becomes this cursed thing but a thing that nonetheless we have to do. It's the beautiful thing about being a Christ follower, 
that actually God can redeem the idea of work for us again, where we get a picture of what it was like in the original design, where now actually we know that there should be no Christian who is lazy or bored because there's work given by God for you to do. And there's no Christian who should be in a space where they feel unfulfilled by whatever work they're doing because they know they've been placed there by God for a reason. That there is a world who needs hope and mercy and grace and love, and he's put you there to bring it. Second thing he gives us is worship. People often ask the question, and this is where you get the picture of the two trees, the one tree being the tree of life. He says, eat from any tree, you'll get nourished. But he says, but there is one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is the tree you do not eat from, otherwise you will die. And some people will say, God knew we would fall. Why does he put the tree there? It's the same answer to the question, why is there evil in the world? Why is there suffering in the world? Did God create evil? If God built into our original design worship, we can't forget that foundationally worship is a choice. And so that means for worship to be a choice, there has to be a choice to not worship. If there is good in the world, there has to be a choice to do evil in the world. And we live in the brokenness of it because of sin, because we chose rebellion not to worship. We ate of the tree. Worship is a choice. It's why actually the first attack of Satan, our enemy, is an attack on identity because he enters the garden, which is in harmony, where there is perfect relationship between God and man. And he enters in verse, in the, at the end of verse one of chapter three in Genesis, it says this, the serpent says, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the, the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Whether there is the blessing of God in our identity, there now is the brokenness of rebellion and it leads to a curse. And it comes in the form of this attack of Satan, and it is attack that comes under three waves. The first one is an attack on truth. God had given the truth, this is how it is. And Satan poses a question, puts doubt in the equation, and says, did God really say? The second wave is actually an attack on the creative order. The creative order in God's original plan as it worked in harmony was God is holy creator on top. He creates man out of the dust. He gives him a partner in Eve who is equal to him and both are given the same purpose to have dominion over the animals and the creation that God has made, that they would care for and steward. The order is very clear. So what does Satan do? He comes as a serpent. He comes as an animal. He doesn't go to the man first, he goes to the woman first because the man was called to lead. But the man's a coward, he abdicates his role and leads them into rebellion against the creator God. And so the creative order gets turned on its head. And we wonder why we have seen the destruction of our world, the destruction of sin on our very soul within the, uh, the, the world we have seen, because we have lived in the echo of that thousands and thousands of years. Then last thing, there's an attack on the word. And Satan knows how to do it. We've got very good at it. He does it in three ways. The first way is he will twist God's truth. Satan asks the question, did God say you can eat, you cannot eat from any tree? That was a twisting of God's word. God's word was you can not eat from one tree. He adds that word, swaps it out. 
one for any. So there's a twisting. Then there's an addition to God's truth. Eve falls for that trap. Because in her answer, she says, well, God said we can't eat from that tree and we can't touch it, otherwise we'll die. In God's original command, all he spoke about was eating from the tree. He didn't say anything about touching it. She adds to God's truth. And then it comes to the last one, the third wave, the final blow. There is a complete rejection of God's truth and an injection of false truth. God says, don't eat of the tree because surely you will die. Satan comes and says, surely you will not die. And then he baits the carrot of self-desire because he says, God doesn't want you to eat of the tree because then you'll be like him. You get to draw the lines that only he should. It gets turned on its head. That's one God, one image. Next heading I want to take a look at is one God, two genders. We're going to take some heat here. The phrase brought out in Genesis, and I know it doesn't land well in our society, is male and female he created them. Genesis 2 says this at the end of verse 20. God's design, his blessed, holy design for us. It says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. We're going to talk about that. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So God looks at creation as he has made Adam and looks to all creation and it's found that there is not a helper fit for him. Now I know that can be something that stumbles us, that, that, that phrase, because somehow we feel that uh, helper means something inferior. Can I tell you that phrase, what it is not meaning is that women are an add-on. It is not meaning that women are less valuable. It is not meaning that women are less purposed. It's not meaning that women are less, uh, less gifted. What it is meaning is that there is a sameness between men and women because women were taken out of men. And so there is a similarity in our essence, but there is also an equality in our value. It's why God will take it from the rib to be alongside a partner equally of value, not in front, not behind, not below, not above, but alongside. And so there is a sameness in God's creation of man and woman, but he gives a distinction in how our roles play out the purpose he's given. Because both men and women, Adam and Eve, were given the same purpose, to have dominion over the earth, to actually represent God to his creation. That purpose is the same for both. But how it gets played out is very distinct in their roles. Now, I know it's, it's going to get into a hot conversation when we start to draw the lines between gender and sex. Because gender and sex in our world is a hot topic. And so there is a war, and I'm not... Uh, I'm not trying to avoid it, but there is a war between what we see in the word and what we see in the world. Because in the world, there has been a distinction made, a cut made between gender and sex that the two don't affect each other. In the word, it's actually declared by God in his truth, in his design, that sex is designed and given by God as a fixed thing with two genders. That actually he designs it fixed that there is male and female and attached to that is a gender which is feminine and masculine. Both are fixed, but both are fixed within the design of God. In the world side, it takes a very different approach because we know that when it comes to sex, even at a biological level, 
We're not even on a fixed realm. We are in a fluid realm. And so even sex is done on an intersect spectrum. And that doesn't necessarily have to affect gender because now gender is a social construct. It's not actually attached to biology, physiology, or design at all. Actually, it is malleable and fluid and, and based on choice and feeling and emotion. And so it gets played out now in an unfixed spectrum of genders. I think that the count's like 131 right now or whatever it is. And so we see the war between the two. The world says, hey, there's 131 genders. God says there's two. And I understand when we get into the physiology, I don't don't want to walk away from it. There is damage because of sin in our world. And so there's brokenness and disease. There is deformity. And so that means even in the realm of the word, there is space for the 0.1 or 0.2% of people who at a chromosomal level will have a deformity or be intersect in some case. I don't want to say I'm, I'm, I'm going against that. But the overarching design of God is that he creates them male and female. And so it's important, and I know we'll take heat for it, that we understand the original design because that's actually how God had planned it. That actually God will define and differentiate between sex and gender, even in his word, that he creates us male and female, but he differentiates between uh, the roles and the responsibilities we have as men and women as being masculine and feminine. And we're going to take a look at that in the next two weeks. Fawn and Lorelei are going to be looking at biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. And so I don't want to get too much into it. But I think it's important to note that in Scripture, each of us are uniquely given commands and roles and responsibilities to represent God to each other and to all creation. And so there is a distinctive made by God even in his design of the gender you have. The curse kicks in. Because uh, Satan knew the first attack would be on identity, and then it's no shock that he will, uh, will attack gender, because he doesn't just sow division between God and man, but he will sow division between man and woman. And he will cause confusion and crisis, and so it's no shock that our world is sitting in that space, because he has given... God has given God-ordained roles and God-ordained responsibilities to each of us that Satan seeks to overturn, so that now actually we will abdicate the role that God has designed for us, the sex he's designed for us, the gender he has designed for us, and we will swap it out for what we feel would work better for us. And so it is a system that is now based on my feeling and my emotion and not on the truth of God revealed in his design of me. It's a dangerous road to walk, but it's an important truth that I want us to wrestle with. I want you to know On every single one of my pages, on my notes, I wrote this, there is hope. Because the truth is, sin has broken our world. And you'll hear me say this a lot throughout. The problem of sin is deep within us. The greater problem is that when we're confronted with sin, often what we will do is say, well, sin is their problem. It's outside of me. And we forget that there is brokenness, not just in our world, but there's brokenness within us. And so what I don't want you to hear is, hey, look at all the people who are getting this wrong and they're saying this crazy stuff. What I want us to grab a hold of is an understanding that each one of us have a broken identity because of sin. That each one of us have a broken gender because of sin. And as we go into sexuality, each one of us have a broken sexuality because of sin. It's not just a world problem, it's a you and me problem. And I hope you don't miss my heart in it. Last heading I want to take a look at is one God, one design. 
Because so connected to there is hope is the idea that we have a new covenant that gives us a new identity that in Jesus all can be restored. And so covenant is so important in understanding God's original design. Because we see covenant between God and man in the garden. We see covenant in the Old Testament between God and his people. We see covenant in the New Testament between Jesus and the church. And then I want to take a look at the picture that God gives us in the covenant of marriage. I know maybe not all of us are married. Maybe you want to be married. Maybe you don't want to be married. For a moment, can we just take a look at the marriage covenant? Because it's so important that we understand it in the design of God for us in his original intent. And so he designs one design, marriage uh, and sexuality. This is the one flesh language that we see come out in Genesis chapter 2. In verse 24, it says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's a guy in the States called Jimmy Evans who wrote a book and it was on understanding marriage as a covenant. It's probably one of the best marriage books I've seen for a long, long time. But it was, it's called The Four Laws of Love. And it's taken right from this verse where he highlights that love is the foundation of God and the foundation of a marriage covenant. It's why it points us back to the picture of God. And in the four laws of love, we see them actually come out in this verse. I want to quickly run them through for you. First one is the law of priority. It starts out and says, a man shall leave his father and mother. So it means there's a change of allegiance in the new covenant that comes in a marriage, meaning priority has changed from what was old and now turns to what is new. Um, my wife Nikita and myself have the privilege of doing premarital counseling with a lot of couples within city. And one thing we will always talk to couples about on that journey and as we heard those conversations is the beautiful picture we have of a new marriage, of a new covenant, is you get an empty box and you get to decide in this moment what goes in the box and what doesn't. And so as we look at your past and your family and your baggage and your dysfunction, which we know we all have, your brokenness, understand there are certain things that if we do it right now, they don't have to make the journey into the new box. And so there's priority put to this is where we're called to lead, to protect, and to create. Second one is the law of, uh, of pursuit. He leaves his father and mother and he holds fast to his wife. Other translations use the leave and cleave language. Maybe you know it well. But maybe if you're like me, that word cleaving sends your mind to an understanding of a focus on separation, almost like a meat cleaver, a big butcher's knife that's just going to separate bone from bone, uh, meat from bone. It's just going to separate. That's the cleaving process. It almost feels painful. When you look at the Hebrew word there for hold fast or this cleaving, it actually means to pursue with great energy, to cling to something zealously. And so the focus is quite different in this, that there is a new pursuit of spouses toward each other. The third one is the law of partnership. It says they shall become one flesh. Partnership in marriage, and more specifically here, it's talking about the partnership of us as a, as a union of exclusive, exclusive sexual partners. We become one flesh, even in the midst of God's creation of sex in marriage. Paul actually will teach in 1 Corinthians 6 that sex, as created by God, is not just a physical act, but a spiritual one. 
that actually it's not two physical bodies just intertwining, but that there is actually something that happens at a heart and soul level that is almost supernatural and can't be explained by us, but is experienced by us. This is why actually even the world, take God out of the equation, even the world knows that there is something very powerful in the act of sex. It's why you have the Casanova guy who over years and years has multiple partners in multiple places over and over and over again, and you find him being a shell of a man down the road because there has been something along the way that has eaten away at him in the midst of the sexual encounters he's had because he has simply seen it as a physical act but forgotten that there is spiritual things that is going on. If we're created physical and spiritual, it means that in this way, God has designed something for us that is so comprehensive in its experience that actually he has put power into it, but also wants to draw lines and boundaries for it so that it can be protected because he knows if this thing gets used outside of the vehicle I have made for it, it's going to take us to a dangerous place. It's the oxymoron of our, of our world and our humanity. It says, you know, sex is everything. Sex sells. We're all about it. But then sex is nothing because you can just sleep with whoever you want, how many times you want. It doesn't matter. Don't need to get married. It's okay. Just go for it. Last law is the law of purity. It says that both were naked but not ashamed. Post the fall, actually, God comes to look for Adam and Eve, and he even asks them the question because they had now started to hide themselves even with leaves because they, they were feeling the shame and guilt. And he asked the question, who told you you were naked? Sin damaged that view because now they weren't just feeling naked physically. They had actually been exposed mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And this is something I actually love about the marriage covenant, that it gives us a picture of what the original design was. Because in that moment, you can be fully exposed to your spouse, physically, spiritually, mentally. They know all your failures, all your shortcomings. And yet in that moment, you can still feel no shame. It's a picture of the original design as God had meant it. And so it's a very powerful picture for what God had made. God is dead serious when it comes to biblical marriage and his design of the gift of sex within it. God designed us with two genders and he designs the vehicle for where the two genders will most intimately, romantically meet in the gift of sex. And he makes it in the vehicle and the boundaries of biblical marriage. And so I want you to know that as a church, we affirm this picture of biblical marriage. That the picture we have in Genesis is God presiding over the first wedding, the first couple, the first marriage, and it is one natural man and one natural woman. I know we'll take heed for that, but I want you to know it. Ladies, if you have got married or want to get married, if you don't want to get married, don't worry, that's okay. You know what, what, what the wedding is about for you. For the guys, it's about the food. For the ladies, it's about the dress. There are literal shows that have been made. Say yes to the dress. Do you notice in that moment where God presides over the first wedding, what Eve's dress was? Nothing. She was naked and not ashamed. Pre the fall, that was the design. I've, uh, you know, I, I've looked at it. Adam's reaction to seeing his wife for the first time, naked and not ashamed, actually elicits in him a reaction and a response that is so beautiful that we miss it. 
Because in verse 23, this is his reaction. It says, then the man said, this is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. If you go to the Hebrew, this is actually a poetic song. And so his reaction, his response almost involuntarily to the beauty of creation that God has made in a partner fit for him is to sing. I don't want you to miss just how special that is because he had witnessed God's creation in the land, in the sea, in the animals, in the birds, in the fish. And his reaction was always spoken word. God even gives him the task of naming the animals spoken But in this moment, his only reaction is to sing. It's why, take God out of the equation, a human heart and a human soul can be so moved by art and music because it is wired in the original design of God for us and in us. And in this moment, as he is met, and this is where I get really jealous of Adam because we get it messed up, his only standard for beauty in that moment was his wife. He had no other point of reference. And yet, what does the world tell us? It tells us there is a standard of beauty and it's this and that. Scroll through Instagram, scroll through media, get in, this is what beauty is. And yet, the original design was that beauty would actually be the standard of your spouse. Can you imagine the intensity of intimacy when that is the standard you hold? It's where I get really jealous of Adam. Because don't get me wrong, Nikita is the standard of beauty for me. But to have no other point of reference would be something good. And yet in marriage, we get another glimpse and a picture of God's original design. Because suddenly no one else looks like Nikita does to me. It's a beautiful picture. And it sets us up in covenant and consummation in God's design. He covenants two together, one man, one woman, under God, and he consummates that relationship and that covenant in the gift of sex. And so I want to make it just very clear that God gives sex as a gift to humanity and that that gift comes with boundaries and limitations because if it is used outside of those boundaries and limitations, it causes way more damage than we ever imagine. And so God is again using physical things to speak spiritual truth. His design is for our complete flourishing. His design is to bring a man and a woman together both physically and spiritually. And so there's objectives he has set in how he has built marriage as a covenant, but also sex within the boundaries of that. The objective number one is that actually, and I love this phrase, sex becomes covenant glue for us. And so it is a bonding agent of that monogamous covenant that we have under God. The second thing is it's given as a command by God that we go forth and multiply. And so an objective there is that within those boundaries, procreation is there. And so procreation is actually only predicated by heterosexual sex within the context of marriage as God has designed it. And it's in that that actually children are designed to be born. You go look at stats, take God out of the equation, go look at society, you'll find study upon study upon study that tells you a child born out of wedlock is far less likely to be successful in their future. Every stat possible points to that. It's how God had designed it originally, but sin has broken it. The last objective is that it's actually a prophetic picture. It's a prophetic picture of covenant. We see the covenant of God and his people. 
And what I want to say and give some clarity to anyone who's not married or maybe you, you want to be married in the future, or maybe if you don't, can I just help, help center us here? I'm not advocating that scripture says marriage is the ultimate goal, the only and final goal of God for you and me to understand covenant. Because actually the ultimate goal of God in the gospel, in his redemption of us, is that we would have unity with Christ. Number one. Secondary goal is that we would be united with his people in covenant. Now for some of us, that will take the form of a covenant marriage. But I want you to know for every single one of us, there is a covenant with God's people that is available too. Because he puts us in a community like this, a family like this, a church like this, where we can have covenant with God's people. It's why in Genesis it talks about one flesh. But then Jesus in John chapter 17, when he's praying for us, his church, he prays the oneness language. Because he says, hey God, would you make them one as we are one? And so no one is excluded from the covenant power of God because he calls us to covenant with people. For some, it will look different to others, and I hope you don't miss that. The design is for our flourishing, but it has been broken. And in the midst of sex and sexuality, I just want to be upfront and honest. God has created sex within that boundary. And so the Bible is very clear and I'm going to put up scripture and a, and a list of things that actually talk, is spoken about in the Bible where limitations and prohibitions are put in place. Things in the midst of sex and sexuality that are actually not affirmed in scripture. The guys can put up the list for me now. And I've given you references there. If you want to take a picture, you can go for it. But I want you to understand in the midst of reading that, that the two mistakes we can make is excluding on both sides. First one, let me tell you. I think we can look at that list and we begin to exclude ourselves and go, I'm not that bad. I didn't fall there. It's the moment where it's like, hey, there's sin, there's brokenness, but it's outside of me, it's not within me. Can I tell you, Jesus said, if you have lusted in your, heart, in your mind, you've committed adultery. He makes it very clear that it's not just sinful when sexually we do things with what is under our pants. It's even brokenness within our very view of sexuality in our heart and soul. And so as we look at that list, I want you to know none of us are immune or excluded. We have all fallen. And so I don't ever want you to hear that this is a message for anyone that's struggling in these areas. This is a message for anyone struggling in sin because we're all broken by it. Every single one of us have a broken identity, broken gender, broken sexuality because sin is, has infected us and it has infected every part of us. Second thing I don't want you to do if you read this list is to then see it as a list that now excludes you from this. Because I want to be very clear, as City Hope Church, we don't just say it, we believe it and act on it, that everyone is welcome. Whether it's in our gatherings, our groups, and initiatives, there is no one who is excluded. You might be looking at that saying, I've fallen in many of those areas. I shouldn't be here. I'm too messy. I'm too broken. Can I tell you that is so against the gospel? Because the gospel is for everyone. So all are welcome. All are accepted. All are invited in. I don't want you to miss that. No one is excluded. Because actually, we want to be a healing community. 
And if we are called to be a healing community from God in his word, how can you be healing in your community if people who are broken are not allowed in? If the boundary was you're broken, you're not allowed in, the building's empty. I want you to know that. So everyone is invited in. Everyone is welcome. I want to take a look because I think it's fair to the conversation. There are those who will highly object to this view of biblical sexuality outside the church and even inside the church. There are churches that would affirm a very different view of biblical sexuality. I want you to know that. And to be fair, I want to take a look at three big objections that are given against biblical sexuality and to help us have a fair conversation. First objection I want to take a look at, it's one I've heard many, many times. We have progressed. We have somehow evolved so that what was written in a book thousands of years ago shouldn't be applicable to us now. It's the 21st century. Get with the times. You know this argument. You know this objection. I'm sure you have heard it. But I ask the question, if we know better and potentially therefore we now do better, I would rebut and say, do we really? Because also what, by what parameter are we judging that? Are we judging us doing better now having all this time gone by? Are we judging it based on the volume of knowledge we have? the volume and understanding of truth? Because the answer is probably yes. We probably know more. There is more available to us. But it doesn't negate the fact that truth, if it is absolute, is true 2,000 years ago and true today. Because the idea that truth somehow has an expiry date isn't helpful because then it wasn't truth at all. And so to say, well, simply because something is old and ancient doesn't mean it's not true now. The other thing might be actually by moral good is our judgment, the parameter we're looking at. And the truth is humanity probably has made many strides in different areas more morally. But as we look thousands of years, years ago to the, the evils of human history, I would ask, do we see it not evident even today? do we really do better? Take a look at slavery, right? Probably an area we did take some, took some good moral ground. We abolished slavery at a legislative level, at a systemic level, as, you know, kind of a societal level. But can I tell you, this is a fact, there are more slaves alive today than there ever have been in history. Most of them are in the sex trade, being human trafficked. There are more slaves today in the modern world, 2022, than ever in history. A truth that I would say is an absolute ancient truth, and probably it will be difficult to argue, uh, is that murdering a human is bad. Thousands of years ago, that was held as true. Today, it is still held as true. South Africa is still always in the top 10 highest murder rates in the world. We kill a lot of people. Even close to home, look at gender-based violence. I think it's over 40% of South African women will suffer sexual or physical abuse by the age of 21. Sexual abuse is still the most underreported crime. Only one in four women who are abused reported. Only one in six men who are abused reported. And so the stats are far worse than whatever gets put in front of us. Take a look at abortion. 29% of all pregnancies end in an abortion. We kill a lot of people. Take a look at pornography. 35% of all internet traffic is porn-related. 
and take God out of the equation, take the church out of the equation. There are secular studies across the world, data you can go access right now, put out by Pornhub, YouPorn, all of them themselves that will tell you that the deep, there is a deep connection between porn and abuse, between porn and higher rates of divorce, between porn and the highest rates of domestic violence, between porn and exploitation. Just last year, Pornhub, biggest porn website in the world, deleted 10 million videos from their site because they were directly related to trafficking, exploitation, and abuse. And so that's 10 million videos that were just the overtly ones. Can you imagine what the real number is? Do we really do better having known better? Or have we taken what we believe to be true and worked it into a narrative that helps feed our emotions, our desires, and our wants? I don't think we have progressed. Second objection, God is loving and tolerant, so why aren't Christians? God is love. Scripture declares it. It means everything he does is loving. But to say that God is tolerant is only telling half the story because God in his love will also call us to repent. I want you to know there is a level of intolerance in calling someone to repent. Tolerance is actually the opposite. Repentance is, hey, you have messed up. You are wrong. That is going to a place of destruction. Turn around, repent, come back, turn 180. There's an intolerance in that. I won't let you go that way. Tolerance says, hey, you messed up. It's okay, but don't worry. You're good, keep going. That's tolerance. I'll give you another example. Imagine if you have a, a, drug, a drug addict in your family, someone you love, care for, but you see the behavior and the damage caused to them and to others. If you truly love them, are you not going to be intolerant of that behavior? Are you not going to, in love, actually take them out of that and maybe even by force against their will, put them in a space where they can get help, a rehab, whatever it looks like? Understand the level of intolerance and, and action there, but it's not unloving. And so it, it really needs to be a shift in our thinking because I, I want you to know, as God is the one who gives the truth in love, we're also called to share the truth in love. And that's a difficult path to walk because even if you walk it out perfectly, you will still be labeled unloving. You will still be labeled judgmental. You will still be layered, la labeled archaic in your thinking. You'll still be layered, uh, la labeled a bigot. The picture I always get is you, have a, you witness a car crash on the road. Car bursts into flames. The driver's unconscious in the front seat. You break the window. You smash it out. You, in the motivating to save them, pull them from the flames, and you'll be declared a hero. But someone who is unconscious to truth with a heart that wants to save them for where the truth will take them, and you come and now share it with them, with a heart that says, hey, I love you, I need, a, I, I need to tell you, you're unconscious to this, what do you get labeled as? A bigot. It doesn't make sense. We have misunderstood and misconstrued this idea. We're called to model what we see in God. I said it before. This is where we're called as a community, as, as Christians, as Christ followers to love. And so that's why our heart is that we will be loving and inviting of everyone. It's where that heart for accepting everyone in our community and in our spaces comes from. But I do want to make the distinction and make sure you hear it. That we are inviting, accepting, and welcoming of all people. 
But if we're going to share the truth in love, it means we can't be affirming of all lifestyles. And so it is a dangerous road to walk, but an important one to walk. And I don't want you to miss the heart of it because the most loving thing I can do is share the truth of God with you. Because I know as it's revealed in God's word where that road goes, it leads to death, destruction, and eternity away from God. It's dangerous. We're called to share the truth in love. Last one is this. Jesus was silent on non-heteronormative relationships. I hear this one a lot, and I love it because it's completely false. It's actually very misleading. I'll take you to Mark chapter 10, Jesus' words. Verse 5 says this, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Tell me if this sounds familiar. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. If you've been to any Christian wedding, I guarantee you've heard this verse. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus actually quotes directly from Genesis. I think he knows how to quote it because he was there. But he affirms the Genesis account and the creative order we find in God's design before the fall. So actually, he affirms God's design for gender, for sexuality. He affirms that men are created by God, that women are created by God, that marriage is one man, one woman, that sex is created as a gift within the bounds of heterosexual marriage, and he affirms it, stands on it. And I told you, I am I, fully aware that even within church circles, there are those who would take an affirming position saying that actually you can find in Scripture God is affirming of non-heteronormative or homosexual relationships. I would warn us in that space that I don't actually think we've walked that out properly. There's a helpful book if you want to go into the depth of it. Um, there was a book written by a guy called Matthew Vines. It's probably the gold standard when it comes to the affirming position. He wrote the book called God and the Gay Christian. There was a response put together by an editor named Albert Moller called God and the Gay Christian? Question mark. I'd encourage you to read it because it's a really helpful representation of both sides of, uh, of the interpretation. But it's really helpful in pulling things back to uh, in focus with God's truth. I want to just make it very clear that wherever non-heteronormative relations or homosexual relationships are mentioned in Scripture, they are always opposed. And so anyone who walks the road that is trying to be affirming of that through the Bible, what they actually have to do is marry the Bible and their position, and the only way to do it is to really neutralize the Scriptures that oppose their view. It's a dangerous road to walk. Because it's done in two ways. Either it's a reinterpretation of those uh, verses so that it's now not talking about um, non-heteronormative or homosexual relations that are in a covenant type of marriage sense, monogamous, good, and loving. And it shifts towards these are just talking about relationships that are, uh, have to do with power or exploitation or rape. And so therefore it doesn't apply. It's neutralized. Other verses are just wholly thrown out as not applicable to the discussion. And so to call yourself someone who would be affirming, it's actually a bit misleading because you're trying to affirm something that isn't affirmed in Scripture, but actually by your interpretation at best is silent in Scripture. 
and at worst has actually had to be re-engineered by you to work with the narrative you're hoping to bring. It's a very dangerous road to walk because now what you are saying is I'm going to hang my hat on the affirming position based on Jesus's so-called silence on the matter, God's word, so-called silence on the matter. And we're not talking about small things, small issues. We're talking about gender, sexuality, and identity. Pretty big things. The warning is there. Let's have a conversation because I'm not seeing what you're seeing. But this thing gets walked out in community even when it's difficult. And so I wanna share the truth in love and tell you, you can have a very different view but you're not excluded from this. You can have a very different view and we can have a conversation and that will be okay. I want to turn the focus back to Jesus. It's a good place to to end. Just as Jesus was affirming of God's original design, what I don't want to miss is that actually in the brokenness, which is across the board, all of us, brokenness in our identity and our sexuality, in how we play out our genders, Jesus came so that he could bring restoration to all that is broken. And so that means he actually came not just to affirm a design, but actually to fulfill it so that you and me could be made whole. I want you to know that God didn't send Jesus as a condemner. And so I will never, we will never take the role of being condemners. What he sent into the world was a savior. And so our job is to point you towards a savior. Our job is to share the truth that where sin leads is death, that where rebellion leads is a curse, but that in Jesus we get blessing, we get life, we get his truth to build our lives on so that we now can align our choices to his way. But we don't forget his heart, that his heart is for us, that it sets us up for flourishing, that it sets us up for what is our best because he was the one who made us in the first place. God creates us, sin breaks it, but in Jesus we're made whole. We are restored. I told you I wrote it on every single page, top and bottom, there is hope. In any brokenness, which is all of us, there is hope for us in Jesus. I love that we get to look at Adam. I know sin entered the world through him, but the beautiful thing is that sin gets dealt with by Jesus. And it's why Jesus is given this title in the New Testament of the last Adam. In Romans chapter five, it says this, verse 12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first Adam brought sin. Jesus, the last Adam, brings hope and restoration and completion. Adam would turn away from God in a garden But in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would turn to God. Adam would actually go his own way, enacting his own will. But Jesus would actually bow down his will and follow God's way so that we could find redemption. Adam lived pre the fall naked and unashamed. 
but Jesus would be torn down nearly naked and would bear our shame. Adam would sin next to a tree, but Jesus would hang on a tree so that you and me could have redemption. Adam would die as a sinner, but Jesus died for all of us as sinners so that we can be made alive again. Just as his spirit was breathed into us, into our nostrils where we are now spiritual and physical, we now can be born again into a new covenant with a new identity in Christ. And that Christ, that identity changes everything. I think we set the bar very low when we start to point at people's sin. I think the bar we set, and I, and I know if you're, if you're struggling in this, you've experienced it. Hey, let's just get you, let's get the homosexual out of you and get you in a heterosexual relationship and all is good. Let's pray the gay away, we'll pray you straight. Can I tell you that's a very low, low bar for the gospel? The high bar for the gospel is that actually you would have a new identity in Christ and he can, in his power, change everything else. We do so much damage when we put the bar here. Jesus is a high bar that says, hey, I died so that you could have new life. So that that life could be lived out in every area because sin has affected everything. We are all broken. Why don't you stand with me? Jesus, as we prepare our hearts to worship and even to take communion, I pray we would remember that you are the God who went before, who made a way for us to be restored so that we could have new life in you again. That which was dead can be made alive in you. When we walked in darkness, your truth puts us in the life. Father God, would we do business with you right now? I pray where there's been moments where your truth has butted up against us, maybe even caused offense, rubbed us the wrong way. I pray that your grace and your mercy and your love would cover over it. That we would know that we're called to align our choices with your will, with your way, with your truth and your life. Because in that we see your heart, a heart for our flourishing, a heart for our best. And so we turn our attention over to you, the God who does not change, the never-ending, unchanging God of the universe who cares, who pursues, who is worthy of our worship. Let's sing and worship together.